Okay, I want to just share for a moment that i um, sitting here earlier before the service and I see the kind of labor that goes into um, bringing a worship service as we prepare to worship our Savior Jesus. And I'm just so thankful that God has uh, given us Gabby and, and uh, David and um, Robbie and Darla and all those who serve us every Sunday uh, and the others, I know the Camelones and, and Stephanie and everybody that just puts time and labor into worship Christ and we benefit from, from that labor. So thank you. Um, I really appreciate your labor. And um, this morning's message, the title is Propitiation. God's wrath satisfied. We will be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Uh, in the bulletin, thanks to my sister Doreen, we have an outline in the church bulletin, just the sort of bullet points that we're going to walk through uh, this sermon. Uh, so thank you. Um, so, it's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. If that's true, then the Old Testament times literally spoke volumes. Because the Old Testament believers saw year after year hundreds and thousands of pictures that helped them understand why Jesus would eventually have to die. Those pictures, of course, being in the form of animal sacrifices. God was making it clear through the complex sacrificial system of the Old Testament that sinful man could not approach a holy God except through sacrifice. But I think people often miss the main point that really stood behind all the Old Testament sacrifices. Understand this. The sacrifice was always for God, not for the worshiper. In fact, there's a phrase that occurs some 42 times in all of those instructions about Old, sacrifice, uh, Old Testament sacrifices. God says this, You will offer this sacrifice, and when you offer it, it will be a soothing aroma to God, a soothing aroma to me. It literally means a smell of satisfaction, an aroma that calms or soothes God's anger. Now that's a terrifying thought if you think about it for a moment. Because it paints a picture that is very true through the rest of Scripture, and that is our sin, which we take so lightly at times. The sin that we sort of commit and brush aside reaches the very person of God and stirs up his anger towards sin. It's equally true about the great fulfillment, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That, too, was for God. So understand this, that all sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, as well as the ultimate fulfillment of those sacrifices, the sacrifices of Jesus Christ on the cross, they were always for God. Jesus died for God's glory. When we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, we tend to focus on the human side with all of its physical sufferings. But the most important thing that happened that day outside the city walls of Jerusalem wasn't just physical suffering. Many people have suffered physically and horrific deaths. It was instead the divine transaction that occurred between God the Father and God the Son. That was the primary purpose of the cross. And the clearest insight into that divine purpose in all of Scripture, I believe, comes to us in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 26, where I invite you to turn with me this morning. 
There are two verses here that if you want to know what was in the mind of God during those six hours on Good Friday, now almost 2,000 years ago, you will find it in these two brief but powerful verses. Now to set it up, let me read the context. I'll begin in verse 21 of Romans 3. Paul has just indicted all of mankind in verses 1 through 20 of chapter 3. Both the religious and the non-religious, they all stand guilty before God. He says this without exception. Now he gets to the good news. Let's look at verses 21 through 26. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Thank you. In these verses, Paul unfolds the message of the gospel that he first introduced back in chapter 1. The theme of these six verses that I have just read to you is how a sinner can be declared right before a holy God and how we can receive a right standing before God. This is the biblical doctrine of justification. Notice how Paul concludes verse 24 by explaining what happens when we are justified or declared right with God. Notice the end of verse 24. He says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That phrase identifies the grounds on which God can offer this gift of righteousness to us. It's through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That is the great divine transaction that makes our justification possible. And then in verses 25 and 26, which we will be focusing most of our time this morning, Paul develops that theme of the sacrifice of Christ, and in doing so, he provides us with a divine commentary on the cross and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Notice at the very heart of the crucifixion, at the very foundation of the cross, was the work of Jesus Christ that Paul here calls propitiation. You don't hear this word much these days. And yet it is absolutely crucial and foundational to our faith. Although the word propitiation in the Greek, which occurs only four times in the New Testament, and yet it is always at the heart of the work of Christ. What does it mean? Propitiation simply means to satisfy, to appease. It is the satisfaction or the turning away of God's wrath in Scripture. But that immediately raises this provoking question. Why is God angry? Why does his wrath need to be satisfied? Now this is a very unpopular concept today. Nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to talk about God being angry with sinful man. And just so you know, 
um, the Bible is written in a masculine form. So when you see man, majority of time it means men and women, all of God's creation, a human creation. So just want to let you know we're all in on this. Instead, they want to talk about God's love. And God does love. But this is also true as well concerning the attributes of God, which there are many. Whether we like it or not, whether we find it comfortable or not, Scripture everywhere pitches man as living and remaining under the wrath of God. In fact, the Old Testament speaks of the wrath of God against man's sin 585 times. That's a lot. And the New Testament does as well. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, warned that the wrath of God was coming. Jesus, who brought us the message of the good news, the gospel, talked about the wrath of God to come. And Paul does the same here in this letter to the Romans. Look back at Romans 1.18 for a moment. Romans 1.18. Right after he mentions the theme of the book in verses 16 and 17, that the just live by faith alone, in verse 18, Paul says, here's why the good news is so important. This is why we need to understand the gospel. Here's the bad news. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Here he's talking about the wrath of God, that is, the wrath of abandonment indirectly against all sin. It's happening right now. God says, he says, God's wrath is constantly being revealed. How? By his abandoning sinners to their own way. And Romans 1 goes on to describe that. As God displays his wrath today, often it doesn't look immediately like wrath, right? Instead, it is simply letting people pursue their sin to the utmost. And Romans 1 unfolds that. We're seeing God's wrath of abandonment unfold before our very eyes in our own country today. But Paul gets to another kind of wrath. Directly, personally against man's sin. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you stir up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The Apostle Paul says it's coming. Here in this passage, he talks about the eschological wrath, the wrath that is still to come when God pours out that wrath directly upon sinners at judgment. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked this question, what does every sinner deserve? The brief answer is this, the wrath and curse of God. 
And that's exactly right. And because of that, unbelievers live every day of their lives under this sort of looming shadow cast by the coming wrath of God for their sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, all unbelievers, that is those who have not come to repent of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ are called children of wrath. But notice here in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, back to our main text, Paul says that God has publicly displayed Christ Jesus as a propitiation, as the satisfaction of his wrath. So the word propitiation then identifies God's great reason for the crucifixion of his beloved son. And it all had to do with him. Jesus died for God to satisfy his wrath towards our sin. Now the Roman Christians of that day to whom Paul is writing this letter, we're very familiar with the concept of satisfying the wrath of God's small g, not capital G, small g. Rome had a pantheon of gods, and those gods were often angry. But there were and are profound differences between satisfaction of a pagan god and the satisfaction of the true and living god. First of all, the pagan god's wrath was impulsive and unpredictable. You didn't know when it was going to happen. You didn't know why it was going to happen. You had no idea what would set it off. But with the one true living God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, eternal God of the Bible, there was only one reason for his wrath. And it was always human sin. Second difference, that, that the wrath of the pagan gods was like an uncontrollable outburst. It was more like, like our anger. But the Bible everywhere describes God's wrath as settled, holy, disposition against sin that must be dealt with wherever he sees it. There's a third key difference. In pagan religions, the worshiper himself was responsible to satisfy the offended deity. However, somehow you had to do something like offer your firstborn, offer the fruit of your labor, offer something that you have done. But the true God, instead of demanding a bribe from us, instead of receiving payment from us, set forth his only begotten Son as a propitiation, as a satisfaction for our sin. God crushed his Son on the cross for us to completely satisfy his own wrath against every sinner who would ever believe in him. Now, in these two verses, Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, Paul makes several great declarations about the wonderful reality of propitiation or the satisfaction of God's wrath. I'm just going to mention the first several because I want to get to the last one, which is key. But if you look through this text, you will see first propitiation was initiated by God. Verse 25 says, whom God the Father publicly displayed. It was initiated by God. Secondly, it was defined by substitution. If we re reorder these words in the beginning section of verse 25 into this short English sentence, it would read like this. God publicly displayed him, Jesus, as a propitiation. Christ himself was the object of God's public display of wrath. So it was initiated by God. 
It was defined by substitution. And thirdly, it was accomplished by Christ's death, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood. When you read of Christ's blood in Scripture, understand that it refers to his violent death as a sacrifice in our place. Our sin, our rebellion, our shame deserves death. Ezekiel 18 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. Romans 6 says, The wages of sin, the payment for our sin, is death. But Christ didn't deserve to die. Over and over again, his innocence is proclaimed. We hear it from Pilate, by the thief on the cross, and by others in Scripture. So his death was not for himself. His death satisfied God's demand for our death. He was our substitute. He accomplished our propitiation by his death. He stood in your place and in my place. Fourth, it was appropriated by what? By faith. Notice verse 25. It's through faith. The only way a sinner can come to personally benefit from Christ's satisfaction of God's wrath is by faith alone, in Christ alone. But that brings us to the fifth declaration in this passage, and the one I really want to concentrate on the remaining of our time this morning. Fifth, it is required by God's character. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath is required by God's character. Look again at verses 25 and 26 of chapter 3. God publicly displayed Christ as a propitiation to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is Paul's primary point about the wonderful reality of propitiation. It is required by God's character. This is why God publicly displayed Christ. By the way, the verb publicly displayed, Plato, the Greek philosopher, used that verb to describe the laying out or the viewing of Socrates. God laid out Christ, as it were, on the cross for viewing. In the sense that we can say that God put Christ on display. His entire earthly life and ministry. But here, the reference is obviously to his crucifixion on the cross. At the cross, God intended to make a public point that no one would miss. He made a public spectacle out of Christ. And the rest of the paragraph tells us why. God planned this public display of his wrath poured out on Christ to defend his own character. Specifically, to defend his justice. You see, there are two decisions God made. And if the cross never happened, those two decisions would have opened up God to a rightful charge of injustice. Let's look at what he needed to do to defend his own character. First of all, he needed to display Christ as a propitiation to vindicate his justice in showing common grace to sinners. Notice verse 25. He publicly displayed Christ to demonstrate his righteousness. 
The Greek word translated demonstrate means proof or evidence. God wanted the cross to give evidence or proof of his righteousness. The word righteousness, when it refers to God, is used in two senses in the early chapters of Rome, in, in early chapters of Romans. It's used of the righteousness which God gives a sinner as a gift. In other words, the gift of, of right standing before God. However, it is also used of something that is true about God and his character. And that's the sense here. In the context here of a judge rendering a verdict, it can be translated justice. So we could translate it like this, to prove or, to vindic or vindicate his justice. Now why was it necessary for God to vindicate or prove his justice? Well, the next phrase explains why in verse 25. Take a look at it. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, that's a very difficult phrase to interpret, but let's, let's look at it closely because we need to understand this. Let's start with the one word that will help us most likely understand what Paul is trying to say here. It's the word forbearance. That same word occurs back in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it's translated as tolerance. It means a temporary truce. It means patience for a time. It's describing this word, one author writes this, rather than destroying every person the moment they sin, he shows patience for a time. God graciously holds back his judgment. He saves sinners in a temporal way for they for what they deserve, to show them his saving character that they may come to receive salvation that is spiritual and eternal. Because of God's forbearance, Paul says, he passed over sins. That refers to letting go unpunished for a time. It's not forgiving. It's simply not punishing right now. If you're a parent, you understand this word forbearance. If you have children, you probably heard yourself say it one time or another. They really deserve a spanking. They really deserve to be punished. They really deserve to be corrected for what they have done. But then you don't correct them. That's forbearance. But the difference between our forbearance and God's forbearance is that they, that we don't carry through, but God does. We sometimes get distracted, or sometimes we're too tired or too busy to correct our children. But God is not like that. With God, it's an expression of his grace. He's giving sinners time to repent. And notice what he passed over in the text. The sins previously committed. This is a picture of common grace in Scripture. Now, that could refer to the sins committed before Jesus Christ came into the world. That's possible. Or it may refer to what Martin Luther thought, that the sins that each of us commit before conversion, before we get saved... But frankly, either way, the point is the same. Here's the point. God has every right to destroy us the moment we sin. His justice demands our immediate death. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17? But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in leave the guilty unpunished. 
And yet we live our lives, right? For decades. And there's no reckoning in sight. In his forbearance, God graciously allows guilty sinners to live. But more than just letting them live, he gives them what? Streams of blessings, good jobs, good jobs, families, um, all the blessings that life gives. He gives them families and food and joys of this life, sunsets, and all of those things that make life so rich on this earth. He just keeps pouring out his blessings on those who deserve judgment and death. Here's Paul's point, and frankly, it's a shocking point. Even the common grace that God shows in sparing sinners' lives, in providing them with temporal blessings in this life, could undermine his justice. It could stain his justice. And so at Calvary, God vindicated his character. Christ's death makes it possible for God to show unbelieving sinners, as theologians call common grace, and to do so without staining his righteousness. That's not the primary purpose of the death of Christ, but it's an important one. It is the glory of God in the cross of his son. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Let the gravity of this settle into your heart and mind. Paul is saying that if God had not poured out his wrath on Christ on the cross, his very character would have been stained by letting us live one second after we sin the very first time. You remember back in your mind the first time you were really aware of sin? The first time that you were really aware when you made a choice, knowing what was right and good, and yet you chose wrong and evil. We all remember that. Most of us do. We all have a memory that goes back a long way. God's justice demanded at that very moment, he snuff out our lives. How lightly we take our sin. And the only reason we live today, the only reason an unbeliever sinner lives a moment longer than that first sin is because of what Jesus did on the cross. He purchased that right from God with his very own blood. But there's a second reason God's character demanded that he display Christ as a propitiation, not only to vindicate his justice, in showing common grace to all people, but secondly, to vindicate his justice in showing justifying grace, saving grace to those who believe. Look at verse 26. Paul here is making another point that the New American Standard adds in the words, I say, as if he is repeating himself. However, he's not repeating himself. This is a second point he's making. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just, that's common grace, and the justifier, that's saving grace, of the one who has faith in Jesus. God displayed Christ as a propitiation to prove or to give evidence of his righteousness so that he could be both just and the justifier and declare righteousness to ungodly men. You see, we tend to think that God can just say you're forgiven, but God can't just say you're right with me. Absolutely not. If God did that, then he wouldn't be God. If God did that, it would stain his justice. His justice demands that the guilty be punished. And so for God to say it's okay, I'll just let it slip by, would stain his very own character because he is God. 
And so he couldn't just say you're righteous if you're not. Paul here is talking about more than patience towards unbelievers. He's talking about justification of true believers. Those who have repented of their sin and by faith believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God had to satisfy his wrath on Christ so he could justify us. Let me say that one more time. God had to satisfy his wrath on Christ so he could justify us. Somewhere his justice had to find its mark. It had to find its penalty. It would either be on us forever in hell or it would be on Christ at the cross. But he couldn't just let it go. What a great price that was paid for our salvation. If you ask the average Christian why the cost of our salvation was so high that it demanded Jesus to suffer so much, what would they say? The average Christian would probably say the reason the price was so high is because of the value of my soul to God. Well, God does love the sinner, but that's not the reason the cost was so high. The cost was so high because of the size of our debt to God, the debt of our sin, what our sin really deserved. Nothing less than the death of the Son of God could pay the debt we owe to God and allow him to be at the same time a God of justice and yet say you're forgiven and you stand right with me. In other words, our justification demanded Christ be displayed as our propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath towards us. What is justification? Sadly, some Christians don't understand it. And yet it's at the root of the gospel. It's the heart of what Paul is teaching here in Romans 3. Justification is three distinct legal decisions by God. And I'm going to go through these quick. Number one, God credits our sin to Christ. God has a record of every sin that has ever been committed. In the book of Revelation, it talks about bringing out the books at the judgment. God really doesn't need books. That's merely an image, a picture for us. God is all-knowing, ever-present, eternal God. His great mind remembers and stores everything that ever happened in all time. He knows every sin you have ever committed, internally in your heart and externally in your body. Every word you have ever spoken, he's recorded it. And here's what justification does. God takes the believing sinner's sin, every single one of them, every single individual sinful act, every individual sinful thought, sinful word spoken, and he takes that sin debt and he credits it to Jesus Christ. And then on the cross, he treated Jesus as if he committed every single one of those sins. You talk about love. He poured out on him the wrath my sin and your sin deserved on his own son. That's legal decision number one. Legal decision number two in justification. God credits his perfect son's life, his righteousness to us. You see, Jesus lived 33 years in this world and never one time did he ever sin. Never one time did he violate God's law. Never one time did he speak an angry word in a sinful way. Never one time did he have an attitude that crossed the purposes of God. Never one time did he do anything except perfect love and obedience to God the Father. And God takes that perfect life, all those individual perfect acts and actions, 
and attitudes and thoughts and words and obedience. And he takes all of that and he credits it to our account as if we had done all of that. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, and this is why this verse is so powerful. The first distinct act, Paul says, he made him, that is God made him, made Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There's the first act, my sin, my guilt, my shame to be accredited to Christ. God treats Christ as if he had committed every single one of those sins. Then he says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's the second distinct act. God credits Christ's acts of righteousness, his perfect life of righteousness, and he accredits it to us and treats us as though we have lived that perfect life. Now, there's a third distinct legal decision by God that's part of justification. On the basis of crediting our sin to Christ and Christ's sins of righteousness to us, God renders a legal decision as judge. He forgives our sins, and he declares us to be forever right with him the very moment we believe. Praise God. And to whom God does God do this for? To whom will God declare righteous in his sight? Look at the end of Romans chapter 3, verse 26. To the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The gift of righteousness, a right standing before God, is only for the one who responds by faith to the Son of God, who says, Lord, impute my sins to Christ, because I can't stand before you, Lord, and then take his perfect life and accredit it to me. God had to publicly display Christ as a satisfaction of his wrath. He had to do it because it was the only way he could at the same time be a God of justice and yet declare ungodly sinners to be right with him. That's God's perspective on the death of Christ. It had to be propitiation to vindicate his justice in showing common grace to sinners and in showing justifying grace to those who would believe. Now, this doctrine of propitiation, practical application now, has huge ramifications for all of us. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ, If you have not dealt with your sin and repented towards God and confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not by faith received him into your heart, if that doesn't characterize your life today, then let me tell you this. What he accomplished on that cross is the only reason Your heart is beating today, and you're able to breathe and enjoy this life. It's the only reason God lets you live. As hard as it is for me to say that, and probably harder for you to hear, the truth is someday God will unleash his full anger against your sin. Do not mistake what you enjoy now as God tolerating what we're doing. Paul says you are storing up wrath. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 8 says this, out of the word of God, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels 
in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Listen, if you want the real benefits of Jesus' satisfaction of the wrath of God to be yours, you've got to cry out to God for mercy. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember many, many years ago, Holy Spirit convicted my heart that I was a sinner. I thought I was a very religious man, but as I looked deeper into my heart and deeper into my life, I realized that I was a sinner. I had no part, no reason standing before God. And I seen the cross of Jesus Christ. And I seen that the perfect son of God came to this earth and lived a life that I could never live. He kept the law of God perfectly. He kept the commandments of God perfectly. He loved perfectly. He did everything that I didn't have a chance on able to do. I realized that religion was an empty, empty can with nothing in it. And I seen God sent his son because he loved me and he gave his life for me and he poured out his blood on the cross for me. And by faith, I turned to the cross and I said, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died for my sins. And by faith, I trust you with the rest of my life. And God radically changed me that day. And I haven't been the same. And I hope and pray as you look at this cross today, you will see the love of God. You will see what Jesus did for us, that he gave his life for us so we could live. And you would see how much God loves you and how much he gave even to his only son, that we could be right with him, that we would be justified by faith through Christ alone. Maybe you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus. How about, how do you respond to all this? It's overwhelming. With gratitude and thankfulness in our heart. All our personal guilt for every sin we have ever committed is forever gone. We don't have to deal with it no more. Jesus dealt with it on the cross for us. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, therefore, there is no condemnation. There is no guilty verdict. There is no sentence carried out for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look down at Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of God. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being poured, put out, put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise, praise him. 
Listen, we who are in Christ will never face God's wrath against sin when standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 9 says, Now having been justified by his blood, we shall be rescued from the wrath of God through him. Let me close with this brief paragraph. Christian, brothers and sisters, church, every day that we live on this earth and into eternity, every day that we open our eyes, we should remember that we live because the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, volunteered to be the lightning rod of God's wrath in our place, to be our propitiation, to stand in our place, and for his perfect life of obedience to God to be credited to us, so we can stand one day before God, righteous. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have in him, and the confidence we have in approaching God through the perfect, obedient life and atoning death of Jesus Christ as he was raised from the dead, so you and I, through faith, are raised up with him to newness of life. God's wrath towards sin was completely and perfectly satisfied by Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sin. Thanks be to God for his mercy and grace and the gift of faith in Jesus Christ.